Today in the Attorney Career Advice Podcast with Harrison Barnes. The right recruiter can really make people believe that, that you're much more in demand. Large law firms actually like people that are coming from smaller firms many times. A junior attorney is going to expect a certain salary, whereas someone gets more senior is going to expect more. This person says, I received, this is funny, let me just see. It's not funny, but it's a kind of a personal question, but I'm going to answer it for this person since they're one of our candidates. Um, I received an email, but it did not list the name of the firm. What are the next steps after I approve the list? So what will happen is we get job orders from employers. And so the employer will give us like a, we'll, we'll say, we want this type of attorney and this practice area in this location. And so those are an engagement. So we will reach out people that we have that match that. So typically we don't show you the name of the firm, but then you can log in to the BCG database and that firm will be there. And sometimes if you're an existing candidate, there may be other firms that were put into your account. I actually do all this personally. If you do have an account with BCG and there's firms put in there, I, especially if you're a new candidate, I'm always doing that. But after you approve the list of the firms that BCG sends you, the other thing is you have questionnaires. So you have to answer like a questionnaire about, about yourself that we use to put together information for firms. And then typically what will happen is then you'll be assigned someone that will work with you as you start to get interviews, they'll work with the firm and you to do that. But yeah, we always give the names of the firm. So you would never approve just some random firm. We also do something that's interesting. If a firm is interested in you and we tell you that the firm is interested in you, typically what we'll do is we'll have like your recent experience on your resume. And I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I might as well. So you understand why we're saying a firm's interested. So we'll have your recent experience on your resume. And we won't have your firm or anything like that. But we'll say if you're at a like a one, two, three, four, or five firm. So fives are the most major, largest, and and these are the smallest. Ones are the smallest. There's nothing positive or negative about this either way. But this would be serving individuals. People, sorry, my spelling's off. Vision's going. So largest would be serving huge corporations, and then everything in between. So we basically say this person's at this size firm. Then we take your recent experience and then we rewrite it to so no one can find it. No one could know who it is. We could know who it is. And then we remove your employer and all that sort of stuff. And, and so a lot of times we may have, if we have, I don't know, you know candidates in the practice area and location, we may say, we have a person that's at a, a three firm that has this type of experience. Would you be interested in them? And so there's no way, any, it would be impossible for the law firm to know who you are, but they do know what your experience is. And if they say, yes, we're very interested in seeing this person at a three firm or two firm or four firm with this type of experience, um, we don't even say where you are. We don't say what geographic area. There's no way they could find you. Then the law firm, if they, then we'll send an email saying, this law firm is interested in you, blah, blah, blah. And that's typically how that works. And it's pretty cool. Sometimes law firms, it's a good, it's a good way to get positions and something that we do that helps. Okay, so this question, oops, sorry, is second, something about ChatGBT. Any ideas in ChatGBT to impact law practice in the next year? Yeah, so ChatGBT will, obviously, it's going to eliminate a lot of jobs, especially legal jobs already. It can do contracts. It can do, it can tell you arguments to make in different types of cases. It can do case law. It's pretty freaking amazing. So that it's, and there'll be more things like that. There'll also be, there's a lot of other AI companies out there in addition to ChatGPT. And, and there's ones that will emerge that are specialists in 
writing legal briefs and ChatGPT can already, you can already plug in a legal brief and writing contracts, reviewing briefs and missing arguments, proofreading things. Of It's incredible. So, so what does that mean? That means that it's going to be for certain types of attorneys, unless you know how to use something like ChatGPT or whatever the AI program is, you're going to be left in the dust. So you need to become very proficient in learning how to use these tools to get information. It's scary what it could do to the white collar job market. They're saying right now with ChatGPT, I was just at a, what was it called? Peter Diamandis. He's got a conference and I just, I wasn't part of it, but I'm not, I wasn't at it. I was watching all the video or watching all the videos, but they're basically saying that within five years, there'll be companies that are using AI almost completely. And then there'll be, and every other company that's not will be out of business. It's the same thing with legal practice. If you don't become very proficient in this stuff and use it, you're also going to be left in the dust. And it's very important to become very, you should be using, uh, I think what Peter Diamandis was saying is that he constantly, I don't do this, I probably should, but that he constantly keeps it open and all day. And, and as people are saying things to him, he's researching and using it. I think it would be insane not to use it for in, in your practice. You really do need to, to try to use it as, as much as you possibly can. Okay. So I'm going to answer another quick question here. It says, can you, this is from last week. Um, it says, can you, yeah, but chat GBT and that sort of thing is very important that you become very proficient in that. And then there'll be other services that come along like that. And inside of law firms, I'm bet, betting there will be people that are experts in that, that do work on that before an attorney ever sees it. So the idea is you have to become an expert in using it. Just as I'm sure these same arguments happen when Things like Lexis and Westlaw came along. People were using books and then all of a sudden they can do research online. So family law is litigation. It's a very hardcore type of litigation. It doesn't require the same level of sophistication in terms of the arguments, but family law is a full-on litigation. Most parts of family law, meaning divorce and custody battles and, and different aspects of it is very litigation. Now, the litigation aspect of it is more like it's actually last week was interesting. Last week we talked about litigation, but yeah, so that's how what family law is. But yeah, family law is definitely a litigation related position. Can you comment on litigation aspects of family law? Okay, no, that's what I just did. Okay, second. And I'm sorry I didn't get to all these questions last week, but I try to come back um, and get them. And if I don't do them right now, um, then I will get to them by the time. Okay, how feasible is it for a litigator to transition into a transactional practice area? Are certain practice areas more ML with this transition? Yeah, it's pretty difficult for litigators, especially if you're at a big firm, to transact to go into a, a transactional practice area. It's certainly doable, but the idea to think about here is you have firms that are of different sizes. Again, five is the largest, highest billing, largest, highest billing firms, billing firms, and then these are the smallest, lowest. Typically, what happens is if you're trying to move into a litigation practice area, you're going to have to, if you're at a five firm, which would be Sullivan and Cromwell or Gibson Dunn or something, you're going to have, and you want to do transaction, you're probably going to have to move to a three firm. If you're at a three firm and you want to do transactional, you're probably going to have to move to a one or two firm. So that's how it works because who's going to take a risk on someone that wants to switch practice areas or has a lot of training in one practice area if that person what is the incentive for any law firm to do that? You just have to put yourself in the law firm's shoes. 
like they're hiring someone that's not sure what they want to do, that's trying to switch practice areas, that needs to be trained. And so it's very difficult for law firms to, um, to do that. And so that's, they often don't do that, especially law firms. But you can do it. You just need to move to a less prestigious type of firm. Let me see here. I'll get a few more of these and then I'll... I wanted out of litigation due to the games. The judges allow bad attorneys to get away with. Can you speak more about the issues of judges for people who wouldn't know how bad they are at their jobs as well? Yeah, judges, there's good judges and there's bad judges. Judges are interesting because that's political. And by political, what I mean is you have Democratic judges and then you have Republican judges. Your Democrats are obviously going to approach cases differently than a lot of times in the Republicans. So Republicans, you know, would be big business and favored, favored and tough on crime. This is just, these are just generalities. And your Democrats are going to be against big business more and soft on crime. This is just the generalities of what people think about things and how it works. And then you also have federal, state, municipal, all these different types of attorney judges. So yeah, a lot of judges are bad and aren't good. It's more you're the higher the federal judge, the more you know, the more sophisticated, the higher, and then state you have trial courts and appellate courts, and you know, so it just depends. So people judges do allow bad attorneys to get away with a lot of stuff, and and that's just how it works. And people do get frustrated by it. I think the general rule is you want to make the judge like you as much as you can when you go before them. They can do all sorts of stuff and they can make faces and have a relationship with the jury and entertain the jury and bring the jury over. The judges have an incredible amount of power. It's, and they can definitely influence how a lot of cases go. And they make decisions even before cases go before. Fact, I mean, with motions and things, there are a lot of bad ones. The best way, but there are also a lot of good ones. I don't know really what to say other than a lot of times the results in front of judges depend on their political parties. They also depend on the level that they're at, I mean, federal, state, and municipal, and then appellate, and then also the quality of their clerks. And if they're not clerks, the quality of thanks, the quality of the judge, how much thought they're putting into matters, there's so much that goes into it. So I think this is a great question, whoever asks this, but for people that don't understand it, yeah, judges definitely have a lot of power in things. Let's see. So I'm just trying to get to these questions. This is a fun question. Okay, so this person says, let me see here. I am a solo attorney from a small town, enjoy research, finding weaknesses in opposing parties' case, finding how to fit exceptions to the rules. This person sounds like a real attorney and drafting motions. I've been successful by motion work, but can't deal with the stress of depositions, deadlines, oral argument, and trials. I've let go of the Jeffrey Figer dream. Unsurprisingly, he recently had a stroke. Of course he did. Do you have any suggestions on other career options? What you do in my life. Okay, so to me, just to be honest with you, this person sounds like they're more of an appellate attorney than the, I guess appellate attorneys do have to do oral argument. They're more of an appellate attorney or a research attorney, which is perfectly fine. There's lots of jobs for people that do this kind of stuff. You can also, there's also positions for people like that are like this kind of work as working for large law firms, writing briefs and things, or small law firms. This is what I would recommend this person do. I think these are great questions. But this is the kind of work that someone with this sort of background can definitely do. And I, I think that if you like this kind of work, then you're often much better off going into things like appellate work or working on motions. And there's plenty of attorneys that do this. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of attorneys that do nothing but this. Large law firms have people that do nothing but 
write briefs and motions and things, and they don't, they're not expected to argue them. So there's definitely nothing wrong with wanting to do work that way, and I think it's perfectly fine. Okay, let me see here. This is actually a good question, and I hope the person that asked this next question is on this call because it was asked last week. This question is, if I'm interviewing with multiple firms and get an offer from one, can this be leveraged into a better one at one of my higher choice firms, especially if it might be more prestigious, higher paying? Okay, and then there's something to do with lots of professional responsibility. Put it here. Okay, I can just tell you what, what I've seen in practice. So yes, if you get an offer from one firm and you get an offer and you get another one, or um, can you leverage an offer at a lower, less firm into a lesser firm into an offer at a bigger firm? So it's interesting, like a lot of times, if law firms believe you're in demand, you're actually much more attractive to them if they think like they're the only person that's interested in you. I don't know why that is. But if a law firm knows you have other offers and that you're really, that people are extremely interested in you, then, then they're more likely to make you an offer. I, your question though is, can you leverage the offer into a better offer with a higher choice firm? Yes. If, you, um, if it's higher paying, yes, you can. You can certainly do that. I don't know. You would, if, if you have a, an offer, sometimes you have to say, I have another offer. I need to have a decision by the state from the larger firm, or I have other offers. This is my first choice. You can do it that way. Sometimes large law firms won't like that because they'll think, but yeah, so people think there's a lot of interest in you in the market, then they're actually much more likely to make you an offer. I don't really, and that's always been that way. That's something to keep in mind. If people believe that a lot of other people are interested in you, then they're more likely to think that they're maybe missing something if they're not. I had an experience once. I don't know why this came to mind, but I just wanted to I'll bring it up. I remember in, I was in a senior, I think, in high school, and it's just a long story, but I had this teacher that gave me a B and an assignment that was important in a, in a class, and it doesn't matter what class it was. And, and I went to him and had lunch, and I've never gotten an A. I've not gotten an A in this particular subject matter. How, what, I don't understand it. And the second I said that, all of a sudden, all the results of everything I did in the future were A's. And so, what I realized that it was subjective. And, and basically, by me saying that I was this A student in the subject matter, next test I took or whatever it was the same. It was, I didn't do any differently, but I got a better grade. So, a lot of times, if people think you're in demand, you're more likely to get offers. And it's just something to think about. And then you can definitely leverage some offers into more offers or better offers, definitely if people think you're in demand. And that's one thing that recruiters are very good at. So recruiters, the right recruiter can really make people believe that, that you're much more in demand. Do you know the secrets to getting your dream legal job? We do. And one of the best things you can do is apply to jobs that fly under the radar. Applying to openings with very little competition means you stand a much higher chance of getting hired. But how do you find openings like that? For starters, you're not going to find them on major job boards because these jobs are usually only advertised on companies' websites and in small regional publications. That is why we created Law Crossing, the most comprehensive database of legal jobs in the world. We have a team of people constantly working to find every single legal job out there. Unlike other job boards, which only list jobs that companies pay to post, we include every legal job we can find in order to maximize your chances of finding a job. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to www.lawcrossing.com 
to find your dream legal job today. I've had instances where I just an example where it's funny, this is years ago, and I had this law firm, I think it was in Detroit, that I wanted to get this candidate of mine in. And, and I was talking to the hiring partner. I said, wow, I've got this real estate attorney. And this is the most in-demand practice area imaginable. You have to talk to them. They said, really? Real estate's in demand? I was like, yeah, it's very much in demand. And so they brought this person in and had her interviewed with all these people. And then it was funny because I think the office was in Bloomfield Hills. And the firm was based in Detroit. And then the guy called back and he said, we realized after interviewing her that we don't even have any real estate attorneys in Bloomfield Hills. And I was like, wow. And so we'd have, she'd have to work for someone in Detroit, it was just very funny. So they didn't even have a, they didn't even have that practice area, but I told them it was really in demand. So they brought this person in, which is very funny. And so they didn't end up hiring her obviously, but they said they would if she wanted to go to Detroit. I don't remember, but, but so sometimes people think you're in demand, they'll just bring you in. Regardless, I lost my position with a smaller firm and I'm early on in my career, but will be interviewing with a large national firm that invited me for an interview. How can I best prepare to sell myself for this job, especially if I'm competing against applicants who may not have lost their job, but now may have more experience? So that's good. A lot of times, one of the things that happens with large law firms is large law firms typically hire the for starting attorneys, people that are go to good law schools or did very well at lesser law schools and and then have a sense of kind of entitlement that they're and they start and then people don't work out or they go to other firms. So the large law firms are always like feeling this person doesn't really like their job or whatever when they end up taking a job when they with the very talented or people that look really good on paper out of law school. So law firms love hiring people from smaller law firms and or who sometimes are that, that look at this job as like the most important thing that they could ever have because those people are more likely to stick around. They're more likely to appreciate the job. They're more likely to follow orders. All those kind of things that I told you about earlier, which are, can the person do the job? Do they want the job? Do we like the person? Will they stick around? All those kind of questions, they're actually much more, they're actually much stronger for an attorney that is that is coming from another, I mean, for an attorney that's being hired, that's coming from a smaller law firm. Large law firms actually like people that are coming from smaller firms many times because, especially at the lateral level, because they're going to appreciate the job more and they'll take instruction and they'll be hungry. Whereas a lot of times if they're just hiring a lateral from another big firm, that's not going to happen. Okay. There's another question. So we're working through all these from last week, which I'm glad. I hope if you were on the call last week, I apologize if I missed your question. Is it possible to move from a large firm doing litigation from a smaller market? If I went to a top school or will a rough or slow start early in my career, starting a smaller market, lost my position with the firm, that's going to define me the rest of the career. No, so nothing ever defines you the rest of your career. Just because if you lost your, if you went to a smaller market, yes, you can always get a job in a larger market. Anybody can. Again, law firms will hire people that want the job the most, that are willing to work hard, whatever. The thing to understand too that I just think is important is you know, the, a legal career will start when you're 25 and people practice into their 80s, in maybe the 90s. It's going to even be worse when you start talking about longer. If you have a bad experience before the age of 30, you still got 60 more years. Come on. This is, it's, no, you're not going to be defined by the rest of your career. I've seen people, I've seen, I can't believe it. Like I have, there's one girl I'm interviewing to be a recruiter right now for our company. 
and I spoke to her, I haven't had any time, but I spoke to her like three weeks ago or something, but I couldn't believe her resume. Like she started out as a solo practitioner doing like 10 different things and did it for 10 years. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then all of a sudden got a job with a huge law firm in Florida, like Carlton Fields or something. I don't remember what firm it was. And then from there, went to work at Mayor Brown or something, some other big firm. What the heck? And, and this stuff happens. And I don't know how she exactly got this job. I don't know if it was Carlton Fields or whatever the firm was. But the point is that nothing you do early in your career is ever going to define your career. You're going to, you will get jobs based on your expertise in the practice area. About, there's nothing wrong with starting a smaller market or anything or losing your job. None of this stuff ever defines you. It's just crazy to believe otherwise. I definitely would not worry about if you get off and do a slow start in your career. That's just, it's not going, you have nothing to worry about. All this stuff is, can change very quickly. So it's, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that at all. You're never going to be defined by early things that happen in your career. Just look at, anyway, look at politicians and everything out there and all the crap that they do or celebrities. It's just nothing's ever going to define you. Okay, how can I tell if I'm talking too much in an interview? If it'll hurt my answers are too long, can I make a mistake with this? Yes. So you should not be speaking too much. Should, people should be direct and connect in interviews. But yeah, you don't want to you don't want to talk too long when you're interviewing. Honestly, like you should do twenty percent of the talking, and this is maybe not the right number, and let the interviewer do eighty percent as much as possible. So people like people that people love to talk about themselves. They love to talk about what they do or what's interesting to them or, and, but not questions like, what would you consider the culture of this firm? Or what are your top questions? Like, what is your typical day? Like what, how do you know, what are you, what, what would it take to be, to really hit the ground running here? And what, what, what would be amazing to you if, you know, just things you can, there's all sorts of questions you can ask in interviews that are good. But yeah, people don't want to hear like all sorts of long-winded explanations and be, they want to just, they don't like it. It's boring to them. And you can always see whenever you're giving a large, like a long answer, you can always watch people's eyes like kind of drift away from you and so forth. You definitely don't want to give long answers. They, some people like it. And if you're really likable and stuff, they might say, oh, that person's a talker and really like you. And if you have good stories and make them laugh and stuff. But Really, you really want to allow the interviewer to do a lot of talking. And the more questions you ask about them, if they're actually interesting to you and they can tell that they're interesting and you can chat and connect with them, the more the person's going to like you. And, but yeah, you should never try, you should never do a ton of talking in the interview if you can avoid it because people are not interested in hearing too much information. I lost my position to smaller firm, oh, in litigation due to lack of work. And I've been offered positions in insurance defense. As a relatively recent graduate from a top law school, I would be making a lot less than I would have ended up with a smaller firm. But now I'm having a difficult situation because I'm unemployed and need a position. Is it good to take one of these jobs or should I hold out? Okay, so this is a good question. So you have insurance defense versus commercial litigation. So I'm actually glad that this person asked this question. And I'm, I hope this person's from last week on the call still. But if they're not, I hope that they see the answer because this is actually a very good question. So the question really is, is insurance defense versus commercial litigation? Very good question and something that very few attorneys understand and does have long-term impact on your career. So, so insurance defense is, well, first of all, let's talk about commercial litigation. So commercial litigation 
is basically is companies fighting over contracts and stuff, contracts, etc. Typically, because it's companies that you're representing, there's a lot of money involved, and companies are people are willing to spend a lot, etc. So that's commercial litigation tends to attract, like this person said, top law schools or etc. The standard of proof. I don't know why this is that important, but points are more difficult to prove. Are difficult to prove because there's ambiguity in contracts, or there's just lots of different ways to go. And lots of very smart people do it in big firms. This is commercial litigation. Now you don't need to be at a big firm to do it. And if you are a commercial litigator and you want to do commercial litigation, what's important to understand is you will win and lose depending on your writing ability and how smart you are. And I just hate to say that, but it's true. Writing ability, argue in court, et cetera, how smart you are. And the reason I bring that up is because what happens, it's very interesting, but big commercial litigators, when they fight against each other, essentially they're making arguments to courts and they're convincing people that of one side or another, and some people the smartest attorneys, and I, I don't, I hate using this because I'm not like trying to make these eugenics type of arguments or anything, but people that are very smart doing commercial litigation are able to come up with better arguments, easier to understand arguments, better researched arguments, all sorts of things that, that win cases. And it's very difficult to be very good at commercial litigation because it's different than a lot of other forms of litigation. And that's what the biggest firms do. They do commercial litigation would be like defending Volkswagen for you know gas tanks exploding or something. This is the kind of stuff they do. But and then you have insurance defense. Commercial litigation is, is a good practice area. And so is insurance defense. Insurance defense is different because typically, not always, but typically you're defending people that are sued for auto accidents, slip and falls. This is not always slip and falls, pretty air property things and so forth. And, and because of that, it's not as difficult to prove the issues. And again, I'm not, I actually like insurance defense. It's one of my, but it's difficult to prove that a contract means that if the satellite explodes, we're not, we're, we're only liable for this amount. I'm, it's, commercial litigation can be very complex in terms of what's the proof. And there's a lot of money involved. Whereas insurance defense, if somebody's in an auto accident, you pretty much know that who's at fault. You can judge it and stuff, but it's not, it doesn't require the depth of case law and all this kind of stuff that, that typically is involved. And insurance companies, for the most part, want to spend, companies have work all the time and they just want, they want people to, they want attorneys that are lower cost to prolong the inevitable of them paying the premiums or of them having to pay. Now, it's not always in it, but it, it's just the standard is not, is, it's not as hard to prove something as it is in commercial litigation. So in commercial litigation, you have motion to summary judgment and all sorts of stuff going on. Whereas insurance defense, again, it could be very, there could be very complex insurance defense where you're defending, but that you have insurance coverage actually, which is a little bit different than insurance defense. But this is a lot of what insurance defense is. A lot of it is, it's not as difficult and from the standpoint of having to prove things, but there's a lot more work. So. What is better to go into? Commercial litigation is very good if you think that you're incredibly intelligent and you believe that you can argue very well and that large companies and big businesses would be better off using you than someone else. And that's fine. Insurance defense is very good. If you want a position where, where you build, believe you're going to have a lot of security, where you believe you could build up a book of business from insurance companies, 
where where you don't want to have to work on where you want to go to court a lot and argue like this is a, something that commercial litigators typically don't do but a lot of times insurance defense attorneys where you get to take a lot of depositions where you get a lot of early responsibility but the problem is that insurance companies are often unwilling to pay for you to look at for you to go into a lot of debt you to go into a lot of debt on matters to a lot of debt meaning lots of research and lots of research etc i hope that makes sense Whereas commercial litigation were here, companies have huge budgets, so they're willing to pay more. What do you make more money doing? Obviously, if you're very good at commercial litigation, you can do very well financially. If If you like insurance defense, you can actually get, it's probably easier to build a firm and do other things in insurance defense. So what should you do? If you go down the insurance defense line, what happens is you're not going to develop the same sort of habits of being thorough and and stuff that you might get in commercial litigation. People move from insurance defense to commercial litigation all the time. People also move from commercial litigation to insurance defense. The problem with insurance defense is that big commercial litigation firms will often believe that you've picked up bad habits, that you're not used to having to do all this proof, that you're, the work that you do is under a lot of financial pressure because insurance companies are unwilling to pay things and so forth. Um, I tell the story a lot, but I, I was when I started my first job, which is at Quinn Emanuel, I was working next to a guy that his first job was, he got a job at Morrison and Forrester, but then there was, I don't know, there was a recession. So he took a buyout not to take his first job when he got into, and then his only job he could get was insurance defense. And when he started, someone rolled in a bunch of carts and gave him like 70 cases and said, here you go. And that was it. Whereas that would be, and there was no supervision. He was just expected to go through them all and figure out what he needed to do. Whereas in commercial litigation, something like that would never happen. But it's just different. And insurance defense, typically the salaries are a lot lower because you're working for insurance companies that are basically trying to push the work out and do do the work as inexpensively as possible. So I hope that answer helps. Do you want to grow your legal career? A lateral move might be the right choice to get you on track for your career goals. Working with a legal placement firm like BCG Attorney Search can open doors for you and help you live the life you dream of. If you're looking for a new legal job, send us your resume so we can help. Visit www.bcgsearch.com and click on Submit Resume to be paired with one of our legal placement professionals who will work tirelessly on your behalf to get you your dream legal job. Submit your resume to www.bcgsearch.com to get started today. Okay, so here we go. So this is another question. Okay, so this question is, I interviewed for a position recently and received very positive feedback during the interview, but was told that they're still early in the interviewing process, but wanted references in a writing sample, which I spent after the interview. It was a bad, was it a bad sign that I was told this or that I won't get the job? Typically what that means is they're, it's like they're dating still. They're not ready to make a commitment. They think, I don't know. said, they're interviewing other people. They're just trying to make the best decision. And they may have planned an interview with five people. And then they're going to just, you just don't know. I, I, that's typically what happens with a lot of interviews if they're interviewing other people. So I really, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I would just, if they're talking to other people, you should be too. And a lot of times people, especially young attorneys that don't feel like they have are a lot of positions are, that don't have a lot of interviews and stuff get very hung up on an individual firm. And honestly, you should, if, if the firm is interviewing a lot of people, then you should be applying to a lot of people. This next question is actually from today. This is, 
it looks to me like the vast majority of advertised positions are for junior attorneys. Why is that? Are the senior jobs not advertised? No, most jobs are for junior attorneys. So that's just what it is. Most jobs are for junior attorneys. And I, I don't, I mean, I could tell you all day why that is, but you know, why is because they're cheaper for harder working usually. And I'm not saying you're not, but working want to be partner, more likely easier to manage. Make senior teenagers feel important. I could go on and on. Important, lower billing rates, more trainable, trainable, just a whole host of reasons. So, just to break this down, a junior attorney is going to expect a certain salary. Where someone gets more senior, is going to expect more. The junior attorney is going to work all the, is young, so they're going to work the type of hours that a lot of senior attorneys wouldn't work. So they're going. They want to be partner. They're they're often easier to manage. Senior attorneys will think that they know how things are done or how to do it, or and they're difficult to manage for a lot of firms. They're, they senior attorneys want to feel important. If a senior, if a if someone's thirty five and they're partner, in and they're giving orders to someone who's fifty or whatever, or they're thirty and they're giving off orders to someone who's fifty, the person that's fifty or sixty is going to often resent them that they're taking orders from a younger person. So rather than deal with that, they're just going to hire younger people. Uh, the billing rates are lower, which is really the big one. Uh, by having lower billing rates, the law firm can look like they're saving the client's money. And so instead of charging $1,000 an hour, you might be $500 an hour or $300 or whatever. And so the law firm looks like they're helping the, uh, the client. And then uh, often they're more trainable and they're less set in their way. So that's why you see more of the junior attorney jobs. And then the whole system is set up to have just in just the whole system is a pyramid. It was a pyramid. So you have, you know, it's always been that way for decades, but you have just a few people at the top and then, and then you have lots of people at the bottom. So that's just how it works. And it's honestly, it's worked that way. And that's how it works. So you, the people on the bottom are generating the revenue that goes to the top. There's only a couple more, but everyone who's staying on this is just a lot of questions and you're learning a lot. So it's great. Okay, so let's see here. If I was laid off from a small firm due to a lack of work and the people there were hostile, how should I handle questions about prior references? What made me look bad at future jobs if they're not prior reference by last employer? How can I address this problem best? Okay, so let's talk about references. So it's interesting. Like the most prestigious firms and the largest firms very rarely give negative reference. They'll so say our policy is only to confirm dates of employment and that sort of thing. A lot of times, smaller firms. They, they're just, a, you can't control the politics of a firm, but they're just, they, if they let you go or they don't have the work, then they're hostile towards you because you're costing them money or they don't feel like you're, but a couple of things here. When, a, when an attorney's junior, you're always going to make mistakes. And honestly, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But the law firm, you're saying, how should I handle questions about prior references? Sometimes it's good to be honest and just say, it, if a, a firm really likes you and they think you'll do a good job, many times they're not going to ask for references. Just frankly, it's just true. You can just say I was laid off and it wasn't a nice environment and people, whatever. But you know, I don't think you're going to get a lot of questions about references. And if you do, maybe you can find someone there that would, would help you. But if not, I wouldn't worry too much about it. There are a lot of small, most large law firms do not get bad references. The firms that get bad references are often smaller firms and firms that are dysfunctional on their own. And again, I'm not attacking wherever you work, but that's how it works. And, and, and most firms are not going to ask you for references. So I personally, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I would just apply to places. And sometimes it's good to be honest and just be like, listen, I was laid off and 
and maybe even the people I worked with are no longer there. What do I do? But I wouldn't worry too much about it. If they like you wherever you're applying, you're more like you're likely to be okay. But yeah, there's a lot of firms that, especially in small markets, can be really not very nice to people when they're when they're looking for lateral positions. But yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I was a first year associate who lost her position of interviewing several new firms, some more prestigious than the last. Great. How can I explain losing my position a small firm due to lack of work? So you can basically say that the firm didn't have enough work. That's perfectly acceptable, especially if it was a small firm. Getting laid off is not the greatest thing and it can hurt you. But if you're in a smaller to mid-sized market, it's okay to have lost your job. And one of the things I would say is most attorneys at some point in their career have lost a job or have left a job because they were worried they were going to lose a job. So people can definitely identify with it. And if you're a first-year associate and you lose a job, I mean, that's just a learning experience and everyone is green and needs to learn and you can learn what's tolerable, how to look out for things in the future. But I don't think you know that losing your position is that big of a deal. No one takes it that seriously. And they, it'd be one thing if you were five or six years on and suddenly let go for no reason. This being you're young, you probably didn't make any mistakes that were too serious. And I don't really worry about it. I just keep going. This person asked this question before the webinar even started. So let's get to that. I have several good references from prior positions, but I'm concerned about my references giving me lukewarm review, even though those were stellar. Yeah. So just everyone that's asking questions about references, don't worry about them. I don't know what else to say. If, especially if you're a young attorney, anyone that gives a young attorney like bad references, unless you're doing, did something like egregious lied or weren't repeatedly or weren't coming into work or showed up, I don't know. Most, any references they give you a young attorney are not something really anyone takes that seriously. I'm just telling you how it works. If you're very senior and you make, you make some mistakes that were a reflection on your morals or something, that can be an issue. But I, I don't think you really, the people that are asking all these questions about references, there's really not much to worry about. Good. Okay. So let me see if there's any other questions, but I think we're almost done here. Wow. Okay. So this question is, when should a lawyer consider legal recruitment? When should a lawyer consider switching to legal recruitment or a legal business support role? And how should they go about doing so? What I would recommend is there's lots of different types of jobs that lawyers can do. Legal recruiting is one of them, but there's legal business support roles or there's lots of positions. Legal recruiting is or placement is a profession and in most legal position support roles are professions. You can do legal placement inside of a firm. You can do uh, you can do different legal business support roles. You can do legal marketing. You can there's all sorts of executives inside a law firm. So a lot of times law firms now have like CFOs and they have controllers and they have directors of HR and they have so the point is though is you have to find something that really interests you. And and if you find something that interests you, you're much more likely to be good at it. Meaning something should appeal to you on a visceral level, meaning when you hear that like HR, for example, like there's different types of HR, but HR often is sitting in an office and trying to plan, make, making sure that the employees are happy, being a sounding board for them, coming up with things to make them happier, being their advocate, communicating to management. What So there's certain, that's eight different types of HR, but that's one example. And sometimes that the idea of doing that to some people is like the greatest job imaginable. Like they hear it and they're like, this is exactly what I want to do. Other people hear it and they're like, no, that's not something I'm interested in. So whatever job you're interested in, 
after you investigate it, should really appeal to you. And it should appeal to you at a level where you get excited. Like someone that wants to be an attorney thinks I'm going to work for a law firm and I'm going to get to write all these, work on these documents and help clients and give them advice. And I'll be the, this is my job and I'm very excited. That's great. So that's what you're, if that's what your experience or what you are and what you want to do, then you're in great shape. But some people hear that and they think that sounds like a nightmare. So you, you have to, whatever job you take needs to be something that, you're, that appeals to you. And that would be, and usually when you hear about it, it appeals. For example, for me, like being a doctor would be like a medical doctor is like my worst nightmare. Like working in a hospital, like with lights and people bleeding and coughing and, um, and people crying when people are dying. That to me is like the worst freaking nightmare ever. But if you're a scientist and you think I can help cure people and I can do all this and I can use my scientific knowledge in a way that certain things appeal to people, you need to do what you think is what matches your interest. Okay. Is a non-detailed reference from a large firm, I red flag that is interpreted as negative reference to potential employers? No, I don't think so. Sometimes firms will do that. Now, there, there are like informal networks you need to be aware of. So if a firm, a big firm is hiring someone from another big firm, they will often, or that had worked at another big firm and is no longer at that firm, they won't certainly contact a firm if the person is currently there, but they may, if you worked at a firm and you're no longer there, they may contact people you worked with in the past and say, what do you think about them? And that's actually pretty common. Uh, that kind of stuff happens now and then, and uh, is, is something to be aware of. In most cases, if you're no longer at that employer, you have no way of knowing if someone from your previous firm is going to contact, is going to be contacted. So you need to be very careful. The biggest piece of advice that I can give about everybody that's asking questions about references is to, to never burn any bridges, to be as nice as possible to people. If you leave, send thank you notes to everyone saying thank you for everything and, and to be as nice as possible because far too many people burn bridges and leave negative tastes in people's mouths. And, and that's dumb because most of the time, those people will be people that you want to work with later in your career. Okay, I think that's about it. Thanks for all these questions. I appreciate it. And I think there's a lot of great questions today. And I hope that was helpful. And I will, unless there's no more questions, okay, I will talk to everyone next week. So thank you. Bye. That's all the time we have for this edition of the show. If you are an attorney looking for a change, head on to bcgsearch.com. 